Hi, dear listener. Zach here. I'm proud of the work we did on Call of Discovery and Keyforge Public Radio, and last year I took my love of podcasts full-time with my company, Rooster High Productions. If you know someone with a business who wants to broadcast their expertise through podcasts and derived social media marketing, send them my way to Zach at RoosterHigh.com. Thank you so much. Hello and welcome to Call of Discovery, the podcast where we invite you on a journey into the Crucible for a weekly or fortnightly celebration of all things Keyforge, its community, and the excitement of Discovery. I am your co-host, somehow still here, Zach Armstrong of Athens, Georgia, USA, along with, oh wait, this is, let me check, this is Ed Pocock. How are you, Ed? Who, who am I? Ed, you, so your, your name is Ed. You're 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 the replacement I built for my uh, co-host. Who, well, don't I don't talk about what happened to him, but you're the replacement. Ah, ah, I see. Yeah, yeah we yeah. don't we don't talk about them, but um, exactly, you got it, Zach. I'm I'm rather excited because I think we've got quite a good topic at hand today, haven't we? We do. Uh, we do. So uh, you may have noticed we uh, don't have a guest on today. This is just one of our kind of diving into Keyforge episodes where Ed and I uh, tackle a topic together. And we're going to talk about one that is relevant to really any card game. And Keyforge, being the world's first unique deck game, occupies a very interesting space in this topic. And what what is that topic, Ed? What are we diving into today? Yes, indeed, Zach. We are going to be talking about the meaty world of collectability today. And we're going to be looking at the many, many different card games that we are a part of as stage points before we tackle how collectability is a part of Keyforge. Yes, uh, I'm very excited to dive in and the elements uh, we'll touch on uh, are, of course, uh, scarcity. And if you're following any TCG news, uh, this will not be a stranger to you uh, at the time of release. Uh, sentimentality, something we we all get into, right? That's why in the Pokemon TCG, Charizard, the original one, is worth a ton of money, even though it's not very good in the current uh, the current game. Utility value, right? Uh, you know, a card that is very good uh, that also might need to be scarce. And then just uh, really inherent value, whatever you can get for it. So we are going to look at these in a couple other card games and then look at Keyforge, which I'm just so excited about because a unique deck game, it just functions differently than than other card games. It certainly does. It certainly does. And I think to look at this, we kind of have to straight jump through the lens of, you know, why do people play collectible card games? What makes those collectible card games more interesting than their non-collectible counterparts? And yeah, for that, we, we, we will link to Team Covenant's conversation on collectability mm-hmm. in, in our show notes below. But it is ultimately the game outside the game, what goes on beyond the mere playing of the game. And in Keyforge, we've got a whole host of activities that people enjoy doing in and around Keyforge. And that is the same 
for most, if not all, of these collectible games, particularly with constructed games, you've got the whole deck building and the conundrums that come with that and you know, making use of the limited slots that you have in your deck. Yeah, and in addition to that game outside the game that you referenced there, uh, kind of playing the, the meta game, as it were, there's also knowing you have all the options in a regular trading card game, of course, that is uh, acquiring all the cards you would need to play the kind of deck you want to play. There's also investing, seeing the cards as a financial resource because they have value to someone, uh, or you predict they will have value to someone down the road who you know wants to give you money for them, uh, which of course is a part of uh, the Pokemon TCG. It's a part of uh, the Magic the Gathering. Uh, and we do see it with Keyforge as well, but of course Keyforge is a different beast because of unique decks. I can't just buy a Captain Valjerico to put in my deck uh, who you know might fetch a bit of a higher price than say a uh, Key of Darkness on the secondary market if we were trading cards about uh, back and forth. Absolutely. I'm sure old Bruno would come up with some kind of exchange to trade Keyforge as a commodity <laughs> if, if he could, though. Um, but, but no, we'd be remiss not to mention the overlap here with elements often seen in gambling. There is an addictive and nature to just inherent to collectible card games. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later with reference to Keyforge and yeah, what Richard Garfield did with Keyforge to to try and steer away from as many of those things as possible. But I think, you know, one of the other reasons people play these collectible card games is for that rush. You know, they, you, do, you do get a bit of dopamine hit when you open a new pack of cards <laughs> and that can be that can be healthy or it can be unhealthy in, in some cases. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's it, we've got a quote here from um from uh, I think there was a conversation. Um, <clears throat> this was a, a large conversation in, in Magic last year because of some of the things that were were going on and the products that were entering the market at the time. Um, and I think this sums it up quite neatly. It says certain people, especially those who are prone to gambling addiction, can often end up spending outrageous amounts of money on loot boxes within games. Depending on the game, these are often purely cosmetic items with no gameplay advantages. Whenever developers try to sell actual in-game advantages, either straight up or through loot boxes, this is almost always met with extreme hostility from players in the gaming press. But it's it's, it's an interesting discussion that we I, I think has been going on through recent years. And I think it's going to be interesting to look at Keyforge through this lens to an extent. Although, spoiler alert, we do not think Keyforge is a, a, a big offender here when it comes to the more negative side of, of loot boxes. Sure. Sure. And uh, if you uh, have played some of these other games, um, and maybe you still do, uh, you might be, you know, wincing thinking about, oh, yeah, I did pay, you know, this much for my my magic deck of a particular uh, of a particular format, uh, or for these, you know, Pokemon cards. But, um, you know, some people still build those and perfectly enjoy the game. And that's totally fine. So, so what actually makes this collectability toxic and what we what we mean by by toxic is when the cards you need to engage in a feel good experience for the card game as a part of the community are not affordable uh, to yourself at a you know they are not available at a reasonable cost so there is an actual money wall between you and playing the game in a way that feels good 
Uh, so that's what we mean by toxic collectability. There's enough scarcity that it just drives uh, drives those those prices up. And what are what are some more recent examples of uh, this issue kind of coming front and center in card games, Ed? Probably a good example of this recently is is Flesh and Blood, which um, is is a card game that has reached the stratosphere. I'd say very very quickly um, for some of the right reasons and some of the wrong reasons. I can happily say I've I've tried out Flesh and Blood and don't really click with it. I don't get the same sense of joy that I get playing a game like Keyforge or even another constructed game like Magic. Um, but it's 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 impressive what they've they've done um, and, and their their business model to kind of succeed. Although I think we should we should draw attention to some of the more negative aspects of it here yeah they had a third set that came out um last year and they printed a first edition uh version of it and and only printed a minimal run this is the most recent set the game and the current price of a booster box on ebay is roughly 700 dollars you are then taking an entire set of cards that people need to play the game effectively with other people to engage in that experience, to be part of that community, and you are putting it behind a massive price wall. Not because the first edition is that expensive, but because the developer has decided proactively not to reprint that set. Um, And yeah, by not reprinting that set, they then ensure that there is that scarcity and as the player base increases, access to those cards becomes even harder. Hmm. So it becomes a very much a kind of pay to not not just pay to win, but pay to play and play to engage in that game. Yeah. Now I believe don't haven't they printed unlimited versions of those sets, or is there is there a whole set that's just locked behind first edition? Yeah. So so the first and second sets are are printed with an unlimited print run, which originally people thought, hey, this is a great idea. You've got right, first right. edition for collectors and investors. And, you know, it is literally there as a financial asset at that point. It is a security. Um, right. And then and you've got the guarantee of we're not going to print too much of this. And then you've got the unlimited version, which is there for the players. And that was the whole idea. But then they took the third set and they said, actually, we're we're not going to do a, an unlimited version when the assumption had been that there was going to be an unlimited version. And it's almost fascinating to kind of see the fallout where there was this harmony from players and investors. There was instantly yeah, tensions between the two groups because one felt that the other one was impeding their ability to enjoy the game in their way. So this is a, an, mm. an interesting, I think, artificial case study, which is entirely of the developer's creation. We will see whether long-term growth ensues from this game, I suppose. Sure, sure. Uh, and I, I think a good contrast to that story is uh, Fantasy Flight's line of living card games, which took the opposite extreme, right? Literally not collectible when they were being published uh what a living card game was if you're not familiar is they would release uh, a new card pack it was constructed deck say for android netrunner they would release a new uh pack or a deluxe pack like data and destiny uh there was no randomness in these packs when you bought the pack you would get three copies of every card so that you had the max number you could run in a deck Uh, in that pack and you knew exactly what cards were in that pack so uh, as long as you could find the product you knew exactly what you were buying and what this did was boiled it down philosophically boiled it down to just we all have equal access to the cards assuming equal purchasing power uh, across x amount of product so now it's just about the deck building Um, 
Now, uh, this came with its own uh, ups and downs as far as a card game model is concerned, but it went the complete opposite direction. And of course, it's not going to attract anyone who wants to find that foil in a pack, right? Uh, A card that is actually scarce. uh, It's not going to feed the person who wants to do that. And funnily enough, Keyforge, I think, does, you know, capture some of that in its own way, given the uniqueness of the decks. So we have uh, over these past 10 years, I think we've had all sorts of companies trying all sorts of things with collectability from, you know, legend story studios, like you just talked about Ed, to FFG with the living card game model. Um, and then of course, FFG has just gone completely off the wall with <laughs> unique deck games <laughs> or a unique deck game at this point with, with yeah. Keyforge. And, and it's going to be really interesting. I think for us to talk about shortly how investors have, have, have responded to Keyforge and whether it's just too confusing for investors to kind of get their head around and understand what does the value of this look like because it's such a departure in many ways to every single other collectible card game that's come before it. But but first, let's have a chat about. Magic the Gathering. It is the elephant in every collectible card game room. Um, It is the elephant also in terms of size for collectible card games. (laughs) And I'd say it probably encompasses some of the best things that we see about collectability and also some of the worst. And, And Magic at this point has what? dozens of different releases a year there is not yeah it's not as simple as keyforge where we've got two sets coming a year in in a in a good in a good non-pandemic world it is a case where there are four sets coming a, a, a year main sets supplemented by 20 30 different products all the time so unless you are extremely rich it is going to be very difficult to collect everything um but I think let's talk about limited because limited sealed and draft. This is where you open booster packs. You have a limited amount of stuff and everyone comes in with the same thing. Everyone has the same number of packs and it's very, it's very skilled. You've got to work out what you're doing. You've got to know how to get the best from your, your kind of limited pool of resources and, um, and use that to play against your opponent. And what that creates is a lot of variance. Uh, whereas, you know, top 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 level in constructed, you may have a few viable decks in this whole limited environment. You've got a ton of different things, and ultimately, that barrier to entry then is much lower. So, if you've got a tenor, you can walk in and you can play a few games, and then maybe even you can sell those cards and get a little bit of that back. Um, but yeah, Zach, do you want to talk about the constructed side that maybe is 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 a is a bit of a departure to to limited? Sure, sure. And uh, and a disclaimer here, if you've been listening to Call of Discovery, you know the angle at which Ed and I approach card games. Um, And and so it's not going to come as a surprise that the idea of, like in Magic the Gathering, uh, paying in constructed hundreds of dollars uh, or over $1,000 USD for a deck in a particular format um, is not something we consider like a feel-good experience. Of course, if someone has the money, wants to spend it, like, hey, nobody's going to stop you. And if you're having fun, that's great. Um, but when you see many people either complaining about magic, I mean, all card games have that, of course, uh, or getting out of magic, it's often because that just that barrier to entry uh, is so high because these cards cost so much money um, and the market is uh, very interesting. I won't pretend to know much about it, but I know card prices fluctuate. I know the um, 
many people if you know a card is banned or changed um you know that's a, a hit to your deck or a, a hit to your wallet based on based on what you have um and some people just play the money game in magic the gathering i think there's entire subreddits and and organizations dedicated to the finance of magic the gathering uh, which if you enjoy that if you enjoy that that's great but where it comes in uh, where it becomes a negative thing is if it starts to affect the player base in a negative way, like we talked about earlier, where it starts to put up walls. And I think here we, you know, we, we come right back to our definition of of what that line of toxic is in it for us in Call of Discovery, and that is when the cards you need to engage in feel good experiences are not affordable to yourself. And by yourself here, I guess we just talk about the majority of people. What is a reasonable cost for me is probably different than is probably a different reasonable cost for someone else, and that is absolutely fine. But when you have a casual card game, you know it's nice if if you can include people yeah in magic of course you've got you've got formats like legacy where you can play the oldest cards in the game and decks are going to cost you thousands but you've also got things like commander which is casual format and lands that quite often people need to be compet- to be competitive to actually just to sit around a casual table and and to have a, a realistic chance of winning are now behind a, a very large paywall and uh, likely to cost people. Um, it, it challenges that line of of what is what is toxic in in collectability, and um, hopefully everyone can kind of enjoy that game. Um, if not, there's Keyforge, <laughs> which is yes. better. We know. <laughs> Yeah. Not everyone is as enlightened, <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> and I think we can also touch upon digital card games here because they have a whole other load of different... They have a whole different armory when it comes to what is collectible and what those oh, games gosh. look like right. and the finances that come with them. But let's talk about a really lovely example. We do like to be positive here on Call of Discovery and um, negativity is is not something that we, we generally like. So after talking about Toxic, you know, we, we do feel the need to shower as as host and um i think <laughs> legends of rune terror is is an example probably of a of collectability done quite well on an in an online setting and yeah in two years time listener you might be listening to this and thinking well yeah it's um it's it's currently costing two thousand <laughs> dollars a month for anyone that wants to play it but you know right now in in 2021 in february march 2021 that is not the case rune terror is it's an offshoot of league of legends um it's in the same world and a bunch of people that love card games and love collectible card games thought hey let's do our own and i'd say they've done quite a good job of it if you like keyforge and you like that sense of discovery and you want a collectible card game uh, sorry a, a constructed card game it, it, it's a good option for you. Its approach to collectability is that cards are certainly collectible and yeah, you're given semi-randomized booster packs or equivalent, but the game is extremely generous. It's free to play. It allows you to be competitive within a couple of weeks. Um, you can have multiple competitive options within a month and uh, you can even complete your collection in, in, in nine months without paying a penny. Um, you can't buy booster packs. You can't buy loot boxes. Um, but you can buy wild cards, which gives you 100% agency over what you're looking for. So it prevents that sort of bottomless pit of uh, g- grinding for something and, oh, just another hit. Oh, I haven't got it. Just another hit. Oh, I haven't got it. You can spend things on exactly what you want. And I think the collectability in this game is 
serves the purpose of incentivizing the user to spend time in the game environment and to see what different options they have. Um, and because of the positive approach to collectability, the developer is trying to incentivize the users to actually spend money because they see value in the game on other aspects, whether it be music mm. or boards or yeah. card backs in the same way that we say we've got a Patreon if you like what we're doing. <laughs> you know, you can contribute. I think it's a very similar thing. and um, But certainly it's different. They do not have the overhead costs that a physical card game does. And um, I think we have to be cognizant of that. Sure, sure. Because the the flip, the other side of the coin is that if you want a game to continue, right, you want it to have an active scene or at least uh, supported by the publisher, the publisher needs to make money. At the end of the day, uh, they are a company with employees and overhead costs, and they want to grow too. Um, and so this... Uh, this is why I think both Ed and I are a fan of the model that uh, Riot Games, the publisher of Runeterra, is using, and I hope it survives and becomes a model for others. I know uh, Proletariat, a uh, small video game studio, is also doing this with one of its games currently, where they make the whole experience free to play, even if it takes a bit of grinding to, to get there. It's a reasonable amount of grinding for being completely free to play, and then they monetize pretty much everything else. Um and so I really hope it does catch on uh, for for other games as well, where people dive in to those extras. Uh, I definitely, for Proletariat's game, I definitely wail a little bit <laughs> here and there just because of the goodwill that studio has generated in my mind. So uh, I hope the same thing for Legends of Runeterra. Yeah, and I hope the same thing for an online version of Keyforge as well. Um, certainly they share a lot in, 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 in kind of commonality there. And it would be lovely to say, to see Keyforge take on a kind of blueprint that's slightly similar mm. to that in its, in its online, in its online setting. Um, that would be, I think, really fascinating to kind of see what, what business model it adopts. Let's put it that way. Yes. Yes. So Indeed. talking of Keyforge, Zach, what Keyfor does wait, wait, do, do we, collective we, talk, we talk about Keyforge here? We talk, we're talking about Keyforge? Did you not know? We pivoted. We used to be a Magic the Gathering podcast, and we're, we're talking about oh. Keyforge today. Well, I got it wrong on both counts, because I've been playing Legends of Runeterra for the past week. Well, shoot. Unless, unless you want to talk about <laughs> Flesh and Blood. We can talk about Flesh and Blood. <laughs> no, I will say they have a short format called Blitz, and I very much enjoyed that. Uh I uh, don't know if it's the game for me, but Blitz was a, a quality, <laughs> a quality, a quality format there. But yes, Keyforge. So what what did Richard Garfield want from from his game Keyforge, Zach? Here, what was what what did the jungle look like in terms of collectability for Keyforge? Richard, of course, was the original uh, person to put out the patent for what these trading card games that we've just been talking about in terms of business model and approach look like, and um, yeah, he certainly innovated on it, didn't he? Yes, uh, I think the 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 two things that popped to mind is when the game was releasing and he was talking about it, he talked about um, being forced into use the suboptimal cards, right? So these are going to be in a constructed card game, the cards that would be, uh, you know, uh, medium powered commons or uncommons, maybe even rares that aren't very impactful. that don't have a lot of game utility. However, you're locked into them. So the entire secondary market of individual cards goes out the door and it's not just, you can't even, as, uh, you know, Nathan from uh, SAS knows as well as anyone, you can't even just add up the value of individual cards in Keyforge and get 100% accurate 
of maybe what the deck's value or utility will be because of synergy and anti-synergy, you know, his system, SAS. So I think uh, Richard was tackling the usability of the cards and the challenge of using a quote-unquote underpowered card in the context of a deck, but he also created um, he also created uh, a game where a deck's power level and therefore its value in utility is obscured. It is a complicated, uh, a complicated thing, and then that value of a deck can change and fluctuate across, you know, matchups and metas, and that sort of thing. Uh, but I think the other big thing with collectability that Richard really dove into when we had the honor of having him on was names. Names having a hilarious and lovely collectability to them uh, that would touch on sentimentality that we touched on earlier. Yeah, absolutely. And just to dive in, I think, to that first area a little bit more, let's talk about the impact of obscuring the value of decks Mm. on potential investors. Because with constructed card games, investors can see which cards are likely to be of value. And of course, you know, harking back to what we were talking about utility earlier, there is always a sense of speculating against the future value of a product here, because that is that is what that is what they are all doing. They are thinking, you know, what is the mm. future value of this product going to be? Um, and that is maybe why saying a game is dead can be quite performative and and have its own toxic impact on the game um, because it, it it damages the the speculation that, you know, the game is going to be trusted to be there in in the long term. But on the investor side, they want to have an asset that they know is of value, whether that be a sealed product or a card. And decks in Keyforge don't work like that, do they, Zach? You know, when you've got the common cards are quite often the most powerful ones, and yet they could be in a deck with one or two cards that make the, the deck completely worthless. Unless you were to kind of have a really good understanding of Keyforge, you know, even I've got decks in my collection. I don't know how powerful they are. I don't know. (laughs) I mean, I'm going to need to look look through them the next time we've got these big competitions again and think, oh, blimey, you know, which ones of these are actually worthwhile? Um, And if I do that and I host a podcast about Keyforge, then investors who (laughs) aren't as sentimental about the game, maybe don't play the game, but are investing in it as an asset, it is it is it is less it is less uh less tangible to them you know what a good investment looks like yeah i i agree so i think i think the the distillation of this point is that the u- utility uh collectability generated by utility would mean collectability uh value in a deck being driven by its ability to win games so and the funny thing is that it's really just those archon formats where uh, where that applies, and even just a few of the variants. So for like Archon Solo or Archon Triad, you just need a strong deck. And so you need to know how strong is the deck, how many different kinds of decks will it beat. Now, of course, some are easier to identify. You know, some decks are easier to identify as strong due to more obvious combos, right? Like Martian Generosity and Key Abduction, a uh, Call of the Archon's Untamed Suite that is just all gas and amber generation. Uh, drum or not, you know, a couple copies of TMTP and Ronnie alongside. Uh, these sorts of things can generate that 
obvious game winning value in a deck, but only to a degree. Um, now, a funny a funny thing about this, uh, something I've seen actually in the real world, Ed, that speaks to exactly what you were saying, where sometimes the investors, uh, it's actually obscured to someone without a deep knowledge of the game, where the value of a deck will be, is if you go on eBay and type in Keyforge deck, there are people who will simply put the names of the rares in the deck in the title of the listing. Because I think there is an assumption that if you haven't played the game a ton... <laughs> you're going to assume that, ooh, there's a rare in here called Quickslick's Plague Master. That must be really valuable, and I bet that is a chase card because it's a rare. And that is the only information they're going off of. And if you're familiar with Quickslick's Plague Master from Call of the Archons, the rare Martian creature with, I think, three power elusive, fight reap, deal three damage to every human creature. This damage can't be prevented by armor. That's a decent effect. Skills. Um, that's, it's, 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 it's fine, but it's not going to win you any games. It's going to be useful once in every couple games. Oh, and if your deck's not filled with humans already. So all that being said, the obscurity of how good a Keyforge deck is, I think, keeps collectors from grabbing the decks just for a monetary purpose, right? An investment purpose. And it keeps these decks super decks super accessible. You'll hear all across Keyforge media that if you spend the time looking on eBay, if you spend the time looking on decksofkeyforge.com, you can find a Vault Tour worthy deck if you look hard enough and have a budget of anywhere from fifty to maybe two hundred dollars at most. And and when you say volatile worthy, we're talking about Archon. We're talking about the, yes, the thank you. with the biggest paywall, which is I think just amazing. You know, we've just been talking about a ton of games, Rune Terror aside, that all have much larger paywalls to to sort of get into and to to play those variants. And yeah, with Keyforge, Richard Garfield's done a great job. When the most powerful cards in the game are common and the situational cards are rare, you almost have a, it's flipped mm. on its head. You have it really a, is. You have a, a, an incident where, you know, of course the the, the strongest get, uh, strongest decks are, are going to be rare just by, by, by virtue of them being the strongest decks in Archon Solo. But everything else, adaptive, anyone has an adaptive deck in their collection that could win if they understand it enough and if it comes up against the right decks in a certain meta anyone can walk into a seal tournament and do well if they're skilled and if they you know have a good understanding of of a certain set in 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 its given meta and i think that is just amazing that we have this game with a relatively low barrier to entry considering it's a physical Mm -hmm. game with real overheads and um, I think we, we should we should certainly celebrate that. Yeah. And that that bringing up the v- adaptive variant there, Ed, is something that I think is really special to competitiveness, because I think the key ingredient in winning an adaptive, right, getting utility out of that deck, right, that usually generates collectability. Winning that that utility comes from your knowledge of the deck and your knowledge of the deck's matchups, not the power of the deck itself. It comes from the pilot of that deck. Now, there are thoughts out there from, you know, different Keyforge thinkers that maybe you do want to bring a stronger deck and adaptive so you're bidding on it or that kind of thing. I think those can be influences on it. However, I think by far the biggest influence on winning an adaptive match is your knowledge of the deck and of your matchup, which is not something you can list on eBay. Well, not without... I mean, you can. It'll just get taken down because, you know, you can't really... 
until we can plug USB drives into our brain and download information, which will be terrifying. Uh, you can't really sell information on how to play this particular deck very well. Yeah, this is true. This is true. And how one person plays a deck might be very different to how another person play, plays a deck and thinks about it and approaches it. And um, for, for that reason, net decking is is just not, not really going to be a thing in, in Keyforge, <laughs> is it? Um, which is amazing and part of the reason why, why we love this game. Just looking back to investing, it's interesting, you know, we, we, we've covered why decks alone are, are difficult investor investments for people that, you know, don't play Keyforge or engage with Keyforge in that aspect. But what about sealed product? You know, why, aside from keeping back a few boxes of Call of the Archons for sentimentality, but also with that thought that once the, uni, once the online client is released for Keyforge and it reaches up into the stratosphere, that, you know, that is going to be pretty unique and that is going to be uh, potentially very valuable. Um, aside from that, why do we think that Keyforge hasn't been seen as a big investment on, on the sealed side? Uh, I think part of it is we just don't have information uh, or a commitment from FFG, which is fine, that they will either keep printing or stop printing earlier sets, because that's when the scarcity will become, I think, concrete. Uh, of course, we have the very first printing in which there are, you know, the possibility of <laughs> of band names, which uh, honestly are a collectability item, uh, certainly. Um, but other than that, if you're holding on to a Call of the Archons box uh, for investment purposes, you're betting on a sealed Call of the Archons product being one, scarce, and two, desirable uh, further down the line, which it very well could be. That could be end up being a, a very good bet monetarily. Yeah, and I, I wonder what that successful collectability would look like from Keyforge. Certainly, you know, Legend Story Studios, to look at what, what they have done well, you know, they've done well by investors, by giving them confidence that there is going to be scarcity of those products, that they're not just going to reprint these first editions. That, yeah, that, that those what, what they have there is, is it's not a free money printing factory. And um, we don't have that with Keyforge and we don't currently have products with first edition or we don't have, you know, evil twins are intermixed with the set. You don't have a separate evil twin set that, you know, only these are evil twins. In fact, we don't know how frequently we were going to find them. That's not necessarily a bad thing for Keyforge. I mean, for me personally, that's great because that's not the aspect of the game that I enjoy playing and engaging with. Sure, sure. <laughs> But but no, we we do have some chase cards, though, don't we, Zach? We and, do. You know, we. I mean, four horsemen from Cool of the Archons, the the sins from Mass Mutations. Mm -hmm. Yes, I do not have a deck with either of those things in them, despite having uh, whew, roughly 150 decks in total at this point. So I am I'm envious of uh, of all the Archons listening to this episode with uh, either of those in their collection. Yeah, they, they do, especially uh, because the Forest Horsemen were just such a novel concept. Uh, mechanically, they're fine. They're not particularly powerful, but they became a chase card, I think, because or chase set of cards because of the extreme novelty of Keyforge. And then the Four Horsemen, you know, it's the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse 
um, like uh, this, this epic biblical reference um, that mm. uh, just feels over the top and big. And it was uh, along with Time Traveler, the first time where we saw, um, you know, linked rarities, you know, in the first set called the Archons, where you get all four cards together and they synergize. So it was extremely exciting. And I think a double horseman deck would still fetch uh, a bit extra right now. Um but even then, that's relatively mild compared to compared to some other card games. And this is, I am excited about Evil Twins for this reason, because people will either want Evil Twins because they'll be especially good, uh, or maybe someone will want both uh, the, a deck and then it's Evil Twin uh, from elsewhere. You could, you know, there's collectability uh, just based on how the randomness matches up in either, you know, name generation or deck generation like, like in Evil Twins. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It, really, the possibilities for this are endless with Keyforge and the algorithm being the way it is. And um, they could probably have a lot of fun with this and attracting the investment community a little bit more without maybe alienating the players. I don't think I don't think you need to. It's a careful tightrope. But I it think is. It, it is possible. It is. Like, for instance, what if there was a, a one in 500 chance that a deck was printed as a foil deck, like the full thing? Mm. You know, that's the kind of novelty they could introduce that, you know, I don't have an opinion on yet. I just that's not even in our show notes. I just thought that up right now. Right. And I don't know. Uh, that would be an exciting <laughs> <Trademark>. thing. Certainly. <laughs> Uh, that would be an exciting thing, certainly. Like, I would be thrilled if there's a 1 in 500 chance and then I happen to open a deck that's foiled. Um, but yeah, what would that do for investability and collectability? Like, I don't know. I don't know. Keyforge is really the Wild West when it comes to that. It is. And here's the thing. I think, yeah, something like that would be a, an amazing idea. And why do I think something like that would be an amazing idea? Because it looks different. Mm-hmm. And... I fear, I fear that the the line here is when something looks different. That's great. You know, you don't need it to play the game. You don't need it to engage in the game in any way, shape, or form whatsoever. Um, it is purely a collectible. It is there for the investors. You have a guarantee on its scarcity by virtue of the fact that it is so rare. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, you don't need it. You just, you just don't need it. So it doesn't, it doesn't cut that that line that we were talking about earlier. Where that I think becomes a problem is when you have, let's say, evil twins decks came, come out and they're one in five hundred decks, and they are the only viable decks um, in Archon Solo moving mm-hmm. forward. That is when you have a problem <laughs> when the actual mechanics of that scarcity become yeah so valuable that you need them to play the game. And um, Keyforge hasn't done that so far. In fact, it's completely rallied against that sort of thing. So I don't think it's going to do that. But it would be amazing to kind of see it explore some of these visually different things uh, using that amazing algorithm that it has. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Um, and we've had some comments from our, our uh, Patreon subscribers like uh, Ras Clark um, talking about that, you know, uh, chasing uh, what he called meme decks, right? Like those uh, four horsemen or double four horsemen uh, is one that I would honestly just find hilarious to own. I don't know how much I would play it. Um, and I don't know if I'd pay for it, but if I found one, I'd be awfully happy. Um because I think it's also about what kinds of collectors it attracts, right? Like we'd be remiss not to mention uh, uh, community member Vampire Polite Talk, uh, who was on Help from Future Self uh, a number of months ago, talking about uh, and Vampire Polite Talk collects 
uh, Mars decks collects uh, not just good Mars decks, but mavericks of creatures uh, of cars of creatures mavericking into Mars or Mars creatures mavericking out. Um, and the great thing about that collectability is that that's something Vampire Polite Talk has picked and then just gets to do. And there's not a lot of competition for it, right? It's a lot of utility for him, um, but there's not going to be a premium on that collectability. Yeah, you, indeed, you're you're absolutely right, and everyone has a different quirk there. You know, you're, yourself, Zach, with rocket boot Tesmo. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, everyone has a an obscure combo, uh, something they like collecting and seeing about the game, whether it be a deck name, whether it be something else. You know, everyone's got something that they are partial to. I myself, for instance, am less partial to Mars, and uh, <laughs> maybe willing to sell some of my Martian decks to uh, to Vampire Polite Talk. <laughs> um, so I think that you know, there's a there's a push and pull there, and it it really does almost kind of capture the diversity of the crucible in its player base. <laughs> it does. It does. Cause uh, the names also have that collectability to them as our, um, uh, Sydney steel, uh, another one of our, our Patreon, sub- uh, subscribers. And if you, uh, if you listen to help from future self, you've heard two very lovely episodes with her on recently, which is fantastic. And so she brought up Indeed. deck names. They, they were given one, uh, by the lovely people over at, um, Archon's corner. Uh, she and, uh, her partner, uh, with their last name in it, which that's special to them. And that's never going to leave their collection. I was sent one, uh, by Darkwater Doug, a friend of mine on Twitter with my last name name in the deck uh, armstrong q tevit pair the kind and it's a bit of a heartbreaker because it's got triumph and i can never get it get it to work but it's just special to have a deck like with my name in it but there's not a whole lot of armstrong's gunning for that sort of deck so it wasn't even something that doug was like oh hey you know throw me 20 bucks he's like i'm probably not going to play this deck it's got your name in it i want you to have it you know i've offered decks to people for uh, similar reasons before and that lets us get that special feeling of collectability of having Armstrong Q-Tevit pair of having, uh, you know, Asher drag navigator, um, these sorts of decks. Uh, but we're not in competition for other people for them because as you look through the sea of Keyforge decks, you're going to find something that's unique to you. Uh, and then maybe you can go get it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I love that. Unfortunately, though, Zach, my, my surname probably wouldn't make it through the uh, Keyforge name generator by virtue of, of probably being obscene. So um, tragically, I might never, never find a deck with, with my name on it. Um, but in the meantime, we can start the petition for a Discovery Officer Armstrong card in Star Alliance. Yes, designers, please. <laughs> Oh, that would be that would be hilarious. That would be hilarious. You know, what what do we like about collectability? Well, we like collectability. And and if collectability was absent in Keyforge, then the excitement of discovery that we get when we open a deck wouldn't be there because we'd know exactly what was in it. So we might be excited about playing it, but it wouldn't be Keyforge. It would be an entirely hmm. <laughs> different game. So please, Keyforge, keep collectability in your card game because we love it um we love we love keyforge for that reason we like the randomness it is key to that excitement of discovery and you know we'd we'd love to see what ways keyforge can do to kind of encourage investors but doing things in that responsible way by making things collectible not by virtue of increasing the price to play the game not by virtue of 
um, putting amazing cards with amazing effects behind paywalls, but by virtue of, yeah, maybe different art or different card borders or things mm. that look different. So they're scarce, they're collectible, but they're not needed to play the game. They're not needed to, to enjoy and to have this experience in, in the Crucible that we, we all love. And um, yeah, yeah it avoids selling cards at vastly inflated prices. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think I think as long as Keyforge remains the unique deck game, that deck value will still be obscured right behind an ability to to analyze a card list. And Keyforge, and I mean that I mean this in a, in a good way. Keyforge is really novelty embodied in a card game, and I don't mean novelty as in flippantly like you know I get a novelty in a shop and it has no worth except that it's quirky. It's novel in that it's unique. Like your experiences are tied to a specific set of 37 cards and they're not transferable. When I open the Rani of Bombagam at one of my first events and it's one of my most powerful decks, I have a deep emotional connection to that deck. And if it was a constructible game, I could just swap out the cards, update it, make it good. And in my head, it would still be right. Like, oh, this general deck that I've worked on that I've made. But in Keyforge, that deck is completely unique to me. And those experiences, those feelings aren't transferable. And while that doesn't increase the Randy of Bombagam's uh, price, what it does do is increase how much I'm enjoying playing Keyforge every time I open a deck and have a new connection with it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And an online Keyforge, which, you know, hopefully we will see will be a whole new frontier for this. And it's going to be exciting to see oh, what I hope a so. positive collectible world they can build there um, as, as well. So I think I we've so. got much to look forward to in this Keyforge community. And um, I'm, I'm excited to, to see it come. Yes, me too. I want I want foils. I want different borders. There, the the sky's the limit with just how novel uh, a Keyforge deck can get. And I want to go Absolutely. there. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, and I I, I do f- have the sense that the the designers and those involved at FFG side are just as passionate about this game as we are, and will be exploring a myriad of ways that they can take this game until the uh, until the custodian of the algorithm at FFG says no, this one is too much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, indeed, indeed. Okay, so if you are enjoying Call of Discovery, and you probably are if you've got this far through an episode, I'd be quite impressed if you weren't enjoying it and you got this far through. If you have got this far through and you're not enjoying it, then um, maybe maybe drop us a note and uh, you know we can we can give you a, a thumbs up and uh, <laughs> probably you probably already got most of the note written if you uh, aren't don't like us and you've listened to this much so please hit send i'd love to talk <laughs> yeah i'd love to talk and just kind of pick apart the psyche there and understand that anyway uh, please subscribe uh, if you do enjoy the show um on your regular podcast of choice of course we are on Lots of different podcast services at this point. So if you are listening to us on your undesired podcast service, then go and listen to us on the one you'd rather listen to us on. If you're new to Keyforge, then you can visit the new player guide on Archon Arcana. It is a wonderful guide made by wonderful people who are just as passionate about the game as we are, and we've got it linked below. If you're looking to support us in a monetary fashion, then uh, go and visit our Patreon account, again, linked below. 
Uh, you can support us on a monthly basis and enjoy rewards like our exclusive Discord full of wonderful, lovely people where we get many of our topics and questions from the show. They are the brains behind Call of Discovery. Um, let us know what you'd like to see more of and less of in future shows by interacting with us across lots and lots of different social media platforms or you can send us an email at our very exclusive email address podcast at coolofdiscovery.com but most importantly do you think a friend will enjoy call of discovery if so why haven't you told them um and have you answered the call of discovery (laughs) 